All right. We're, uh, as I said last week, we're going to go ahead and um, jump into the Gospel of John. I am going to focus on, um, usually on Sundays, on just uh, a couple of verses um, and or a particular theme and uh, make sure that that message hovers around 30 minutes. But here on Wednesday, I want to be able to give you the detail that I um, can't really give on Sunday and keep it within that time frame. And so thankfully, those of you that are here tonight, I appreciate you coming. And, uh, you know, this is podcasted. So that's a way to stay up with it. If you miss a particular, you know, meeting. Um, you can continue to go through the gospel of John with us. And uh, and then obviously we stream it. And once the stream is over, uh, that video is still available on YouTube. It's still available on our Facebook page. Harder to find stuff on Facebook uh, than it is on YouTube. Again, the easiest way to do this is just to subscribe to the podcast and then you automatically get it pushed to your device and you can listen to it anytime. So, um, all right. So the gospel of John, by way of introduction, I didn't talk a lot about John's gospel, um, other than jumping directly into the text, but it is likely that, uh, John's gospel was the last of the four authentic gospels to be written um, the author is the beloved disciple. And as we go through John's gospel, we will see that that's how he refers to himself throughout the gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never, throughout the gospel, he never calls himself John, all right? Um, however, the title that is appended to the gospel, kata uh, ioanen, according to John, is very early, okay? Um so there are times when um, the uh, the title of a particular book or letter is not internal to it, right? It's external to it, and really we we find that with uh, with the Gospels, right? It's always uh, the the Greek word according to is kata, right? Kata Markon, kata Matheon, kata Lukon, kata Eoanen, right? According to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. Um, so uh, that's how we understand this to be John. And from the earliest days in the history of the church, this is always understood to be John, who was likely the youngest of the 12, the, the 12 that were chosen as Jesus' uh, initial uh, disciples, and then uh, uh, he appointed his apostles, right? Um, this is the John whose brother is James. So whenever they're mentioned in, um, whenever, they're, whenever they are mentioned in the gospel accounts, it's always James and John or the sons of Zebedee, right? So I'm going to go ahead. Uh, I had a piece of uh, a video that I played on Sunday uh, from the gospel of John movie that uh, narrated the verses that I'm about to read. But uh, I am going to read um, John 1, 1 through 18. Now, uh, Elijah has the English Standard Version that will appear on the screen. 
and I know this might seem a little confusing, but I copied this out of the New American Standard Bible. You'll see subtle differences between the two as I read through this, okay? So John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. Now, what you'll see the difference there is it will say, um, all things were made by him. This word can mean either thing, right? Usually when we think of something that is made, we think of something that we create out of existing materials, right? So somebody made this building. They built this building. You can make something out of clay. But the word uh, in Greek that is used here is a word that literally means to bring into existence, or at least it can mean that, and we think that that's what it means here. So actually, the New American Standard is probably a little closer here, okay? Um, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it or overcome it. A man came, one sent from God, and his name was John. Now, this isn't the John that wrote the gospel. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. This was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glories of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, again, this is John the Baptist, and called him out, uh, and and called out, not called him out, and called out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who is coming after me has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father or in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So these verses, verses 1 through 18, um, are collectively known as the prologue. Um, they're an introduction to the entire gospel. Commentator Craig Keener writes, further, the prologue functions as a presupposition for the rest of the gospel. Thus, the prologue introduces the intent or the purpose or the theme of the gospel. The theme evident, as I said on Sunday, the theme evident throughout the gospel of John is Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God, right? So let's go back up. Now, I covered these verses on Sunday, but I want to kind of fill in the areas that I was not able to talk about Sunday because uh, of the constraints of time. It begins, in the beginning. This is also the opening line of our Bible in Genesis 1.1. What does Genesis 1.1 say? You probably know it as well as you know John 3.16. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. However, John's in the beginning goes back further. Genesis starts with God's creation of the universe. So obviously God existed before he created the universe. And obviously the material of the universe was not the same as God. There are those that are called pantheists who simply see God and the universe as the same. Uh, you run into this all the time when people say, well, the universe you know, must be trying to tell me something. The universe isn't trying to tell you anything. Okay, the universe is material. God is the one who made the universe and he existed before the universe. Well, here we have the testimony that the word was with God in the beginning, right? And this beginning is before the creation of the universe. So it is a beginning that is before time, essentially. Um, In the beginning was the word or in the beginning, the word already existed. That's how the Good News Bible has it. John's gospel will clearly reveal that Jesus Christ is one with the Father. I and the Father are one, he says in John 10.30. And then in uh, John 8.58, which is actually earlier, but nonetheless, before Abraham was born, he says, I am. And he uses a, a phrase there that we find throughout the gospel of John that is reflective of the name of God. Okay, God's uh, unique name in the Old Testament is uh, four letters uh, in Hebrew, yod Hey vav Hey, And we're going to get back into this uh, later in this study uh, tonight. But that derives from the Hebrew word for existence, okay? And when we look at the way it was introduced to Moses, that is the way the name was introduced to Moses, um, he tells Moses, I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. So another way of understanding God's name, yod heh vav Yahweh, is the I am. So when Jesus says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am, he is identifying himself with God. So the son is eternal because he's united with God the Father, who is eternal. Indeed, God is the only inherently or intrinsically eternal being. Um, Listen to what it says in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality. Now, there are those who will tell you that the human soul is inherently immortal. And that's not, it's just simply not biblical. Okay. God is brought you into existence at a period of time and he sustains your existence. You are not inherently immortal and that's why we need to receive eternal life from the only immortal God, the one who is able to give us eternal life. The word did not come into existence. He has always existed with God as God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. That means he had to, if he's the beginning, he had to have existed before time. And the Omega, if he brings everything to the end, then he (coughs) continues to exist beyond time. And by the way, um, calling him the Alpha and the Omega is found in Revelation 22, 13, right? Right at the end of the Bible. So uh, I mentioned this Sunday that uh, uh, on the Sunday after Christmas, little Lydia was down here and asked me how old Jesus was. That was your daughter. 
And what I should have just simply said is Jesus is forever old. But I, I did try to explain to her because I understood she was thinking of, you know, the baby born in the manger, who of course was born at a period of time. And so if I were to follow that idea, then Jesus is more than 2,000 years old. But since Jesus is the word who existed before time, then Jesus is indeed forever old. Now, let's look at this um, this idea of the word as it is applied to Jesus. In the prologue, Christ is identified as the word, and the Greek word for word is logos or logos. Um, he existed eternally, the personification of of God's thought or wisdom, the only begotten son, okay? The eternally begotten son, even. Let's look at this idea of word as a message, okay? Um, I did talk about this Sunday briefly. The word or a word in English, a word is the basic distinct conceptual, conceptual unit excuse me, of language. So a word is what gives our thought structure and permits communication with other minds. The logos is the message of God's will for human persons in its pure, perfect, undiluted form. If you want to figure out um, what God's will is, then you look at Jesus. In the incarnate Christ, God's written or spoken words, the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, are expressed and embodied in a perfect human being. Jesus is the fulfillment and expression of the law and the prophets. Um, Jesus is God's means and method of communicating his message to human beings. Listen to that again. Jesus is God's means and method of communicating his message. If you want to find out what God thinks, you look at Jesus. As I said on Sunday, we call the Bible the word of God. I'm pointing to my computer because my Bible is on my computer. But Jesus is the perfect word of God and the final revelation of God to human beings. Um, his message, that is God's message, uh, is found in Jesus, perfectly embodied in Jesus, personified in Jesus. Jesus uh, is God's truth fully realized, the complete message, full strength. He communicates God's perfect will to human beings but on our level, you ever read the Bible and you just didn't understand it, right? Maybe you read it in the old King James, which sounds really poetic, but you were like, huh? Now, I know people that were older people that were raised in church and, you know, they heard the King James read from the time they were little, so it's understandable to them. But for most of us, it's, you might as well be speaking another language, Years ago, I discovered that even contemporary translations, like the New International Version, is not understandable to children. Uh, I have our kids memorize Bible verses in karate, and I know that they are saying words that they do not understand. You know, I've got a five-year-old saying, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. There's a metaphor that they don't understand. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Do you know a five-year-old that understands the word acknowledge? Do you even understand the word acknowledge? Are you following what I'm saying? So this is why, you know, uh, various translations of Scripture are actually a good thing. But 
really, Jesus is the one who shows us God's will and gives us that message. Christ is God's final revelation. Listen to what uh, Ironside says in his addresses on the Gospel of John. In Christ, the mind of God is fully revealed. He who hears him, hears God. Did you hear that? He who hears Christ, hears God. Okay? So when we read the word, the scripture, it reveals the word. Okay? The person of Christ. Now let's look at this uh, word, this logos, as reason. Logos also refers to reason in Greek. Reason may refer to order or purpose. The word then personifies God's love and logic. Perhaps more accurately, God's love and logic flow through his son, the eternal word of God. Now, this is something I just didn't have time for on Sunday that I really want to bring out tonight. Um, John is making the gospel known to the Gentile world, okay? And the basis of thought for the Gentile world came from the Greeks, okay? It's called Hellenistic culture. So going back 400 years before Christ, Alexander the Great conquered the Western world and spread Greek culture all over the world. So as the result, everybody was familiar with the Greek language and the Greek culture, and that was kind of their touchstone, all right? That was their, uh, their, their common culture. We have a common culture that was originally um, Christian in nature, and this is why we're going through a radical shift in culture in the Western world right now, and that shift is away from Christianity. The concept of term logos is present in Greek philosophy prior to the birth of Jesus. The 6th century BC philosopher, that is 500 years before Jesus, Heraclitus, thought that the universe is organized according to the logos. Heraclitus reportedly spoke of thought as guiding and ordering the universe. And six of the surviving 130 fragments of his work referred to the logos, four in the technical sense of being eternal, omnipresent, the divine cause, and so forth. That's Craig Keener. Heraclitus illustrated this when he said, you cannot put your foot in the same river twice. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Okay? Think about a river or a creek. You know, we go down here, you go over to Central Park, there's a creek that's down there. Okay? We, our church used to meet up on sort of in Central Park, kind of on the bank of, uh, of the creek there. There's a big tree and we would put a bunch of chairs there. But then you can walk down in there and the creek is, you know, it depends on if it's rained or not. But, you know, it's, it's not, it's just kind of a trickle, but it still flows, doesn't it? Okay. Um, so think of a river, think of a creek. So what would Heraclitus have meant by saying you can't put your foot in the same river twice? Well, you're looking at that creek and you're like, no, it's the same creek. But think about it. It continues to flow, doesn't it? And and everything is just continuing to change, right? The the silt, the rocks, the whatever, everything's moving, 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 moving. So you put your foot in there, take your foot out. When you put your foot back in, it's really a different creek, essentially. Now, he used this as an illustration um, because... A river is like the universe. It's always moving. The universe is all, it's all moving. 
It's moving out. All of the matter in the universe is moving away from all the other matter in the universe. Did you know that? Everything is moving outward. It's a phenomenon known as entropy. All matter is proceeding toward, uh, increasingly proceeding toward chaos. All energy is proceeding increasingly toward its lowest possible form, or sometimes it's called energy death, right? Um, we can, however, perceive or understand a river because it moves according to a discoverable pattern. Stoic philosophers, beginning with Zeno, developed the Logos idea further. Uh, and here's a quote concerning the Stoics, once again from Craig Keener. Stoics held that the passive principle in the universe was matter and the active principle, Logos, which is in practice identical to God, acts upon matter. Um, this is the concept of a universal law of nature. So this is, this is true. Science is predicated on and needs in order to operate this idea of the consistency of nature. We can look at the bodies in the universe as they move, but they move according to a discernible pattern to the degree that, okay, do y'all remember the solar eclipse that we had uh, several years back? You, do you remember that? We didn't see, I, I passed out eclipse glasses here in church so people could go out and see it. It really wasn't very visible here in Garland, okay, because of our location. But I drove up to um, Missouri and man, I got, I got in a location where the eclipse was going to be the longest. They predicted it. They knew exactly where it was coming and, you know, where the moon would cover the sun the angle that you would most perfectly be in the shade. And it was cool. Did you know there's another one that's coming? I think it's 2024. And we're going to be able to see it here in Garland. It's going to be amazing. It's going to last. I the, When the eclipse came in, oh, when was it? Like 2017 or whenever it was? I think it was 2017. When the, when the eclipse came there, I drove so I could get, you know, in a place where it was going to last the longest. And it was like a minute and 45 or 50 seconds. Did you know the eclipse that is going to come, the next one that's going to come, um, will last for almost four minutes in Garland? Now that's cool, okay? But here's what's even cooler. We know that because nature is so perfectly um, ordered, so we can look at the pattern of the sun and the moon and know to the minute, literally, actually to the second, when the moon is going to, and that's another thing. Um, it's amazing about an eclipse. You have the sun, which is incredibly large, okay? You have the moon, which is, a, I think it's like a sixth the size of the earth, all right, But because of this relative distance between the earth and the moon and the sun, the moon perfectly covers the sun during an eclipse. That wouldn't have to be the case, right? This is just another example of how the universe is ordered. Um, there is an underlying order to the universe without which science would be impossible. Another philosopher or writer, uh, Plutarch, pointed to the classic poets of his ancient era as examples of the Logos or reason present 
in human hearts. This develops into natural or moral law by the Romans. So there is there is the law, the laws of physics, ironclad laws of physics and constants of physics. Okay. We would call that perhaps the law of, of nature. Okay. But then if you flip that and say natural law, we're talking about a moral law that is present for all of us. Okay. A right and a wrong that is right and wrong for everyone. Here's a couple of quotes here. Uh, The idea of natural universal law became so widespread that some Roman legal codes began by distinguishing laws particular to given states from the law of nature. The law due to natural reason, uh, the law of nature, the law due to natural reason, because the Logos doctrine became pervasive and influenced Jewish formulations, um, it had at least an indirect influence on the relevance of God's of John's logos language in the prologue. So what what we're saying here is that this would have made sense in the culture that John was was delivering this gospel to in the Hellenistic culture. Well, let's look at uh, reason as it as it applies to Jesus. As I said, um, reason refers to purpose. And order. So let's look at the idea of reason as purpose. Jesus is the reason. You know, you've heard it said around Christmas time, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Um, Jesus is the reason for creation, the basis of its order and its sustainer. So let that rest in your thinking for a moment because we'll come back to that. Here are a couple of scriptures to back that up. Jesus is the reason for creation, the basis of its order and its sustainer. All things were made by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, this is what we have here in the scripture. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This is the word as the reason for all this. Now we find in just a moment, that uh, John's gospel clearly indicates that Jesus is the agent of creation. So you'll see that further. Hebrews 1, 2 through 3, which by the way, I sent this out this morning. If you get uh, my daily Bible, um, I sent these verses out. And if you don't, and those of you that are online, I'll send out a daily Bible passage or verse every uh, every single day. And all you need to do is text the, the, the phrase daily Bible, no spaces, just daily Bible to 94000. Don't put anything else in the text, just daily Bible without a space. I have people that are like daily Bible scriptures or something, and it won't, it won't put you in the group if you do that. You just text daily Bible without a space, D-A-I-L-Y-B-I-B-L-E, to 94000. And then you get stuff like this. Here it is, Hebrews 1, 2 through 3. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins or for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So notice here, he is the purpose and he is the sustainer. Um, let's look at this idea of word as, uh, as it would relate to the name of God. 
The word represents God personally and literally, even as the name, Hashem, um, that's the tetragrammaton, the name of God, represents God symbolically or in, in metaphor. The, what is the third commandment? The first commandment is, have no other gods before me. That's the second commandment. Don't make any idols. What's the third commandment? Do not use the name of the Lord your God in vain or in an empty way, okay? Um, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. That's what we say, the Lord your God, and I'll tell you why we do that in just a moment. Um, God's name represents him, just like your name represents you, okay? Um, there, there are other Mistys, other Magdalenas, there are other Jacobs, there are other Charlottes, but once we know that that is, oh, that's, that's that Jacob, okay? Then we have all of these associations, okay, that surround that name. So when I speak your name, whether in your presence or your absence, but most uh, acutely in your absence, your name stands for you, doesn't it? Okay, that's so important that God didn't want the name, his name to be used in an empty way, okay? Um, so it is a word that is the name, is a word that stands for all that God is. Jews took the name so seriously that they wouldn't even pronounce it. They wouldn't pronounce it at all. They substituted the word Lord, or in Hebrew, Adonai, in its place. In fact, hundreds of years later, a group of Jewish copyists known as the Masoretes from whom we get the Masoretic texts, and that's, uh, uh, those are the texts that we get our, our Old Testament from. They place the vowels for Adonai, A-O-I, the vowels for Adonai, over the consonants yod He vav He. Now, we think that the correct pronunciation for the Tetragrammaton, God's name, yod He vav He, or Y. H W H in English is Yahweh. Um, there is a new translation of scripture that comes from John MacArthur's uh, uh, school of thought, uh, group of scholars, um, called the Legacy Standard Bible. And it is the only translation that I have encountered that doesn't follow the English convention which is a, 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 goes all the way back to the Masoretes, by the way, of substituting the word Lord every time you have God's name. So if you look up the Legacy Standard Bible in your uh, Bible app, the uh, YouVersion Bible app, just type in Bible.com on your computer or look up the YouVersion Bible app uh, in your app store and download it and look, uh, read through the Legacy Standard Bible in the Old Testament and it will say Yahweh every time we have this yod heh vav -Hey. Well, the Jews were so concerned that they not mispronounce God's name or use it in an empty way, that they wouldn't say it at all. Instead, they would say the word Lord, Adonai. So the Masoretes, when they were, so what you need to understand about Hebrew is there are no vowels in ancient Hebrew. The vowels are understood. It's all consonants. And there are some of the consonants that function like vowels, right? Uh, Aleph is one of them. Ayin is another one of them. But um, ancient Hebrew was no longer spoken. 
by the Jews. By the, in fact, by, uh, by Jesus' time, Hebrew wasn't spoken by the Jews. They spoke a, uh, a later development of Hebrew called Aramaic, okay? So only scholars, scribes, understood ancient Hebrew. So by the time we get to the Masoretes, they wanted to make sure that anybody, any scholar who was uh, pronouncing or chanting or canting publicly the scripture would not make a mistake and say God's name. So they put the vowels Adonai over the consonants Yahweh. It was not intended to be pronounced. And yet, we have a bunch of English speakers who come along in the time of uh, English Bibles, and guess what they do? Yep, they pronounced it. And so we get this word that is not God's name. You know what the word that is not God's name is? Jehovah. That's not God's name. yah Why? Are you following me? Adonai. They put the vowels for Adonai above the consonants for Yahweh, so you wouldn't pronounce it. But here we come. These we're, we're just these brilliant English speakers translating the Bible, right? And so uh, the the Germans in English is uh, originally a Germanic language. Didn't have a Y sound. Every time you have a Y sound, a Yod in uh, Hebrew, you have a J in German. So Jesus' name, Jesus, okay, Joshua, Jeshua is Yeshua, okay? But we have all these J sounds that come from the original Germanic uh, English, okay? So Yehovah becomes Jehovah, and it was never intended to be pronounced at all, all right? I don't know if you wanted to learn that or not, but there you go. Uh, as I said, most English Bibles continue to follow this tradition by substituting the word Lord. And you'll know in your Bible because it's not just L-O-R-D. It's capital L, and then it is a lowercase caps O-R-D. So it's all capitals, but uppercase capital, normal capital L, and then lowercase caps O-R-D. That's Yahweh every time in your English Bible. But again, get the Legacy Standard Bible and it'll just uh, say it, right? Um, At the time the Gospel of John was written, as I mentioned just a moment ago, most Jews could not speak or even read Hebrew, which is the language of the Old Testament. Instead, the Jewish lingua franca was Aramaic. This language is related to Hebrew, much much like contemporary English relates to Old English. If I were to read something to you from Old English, you wouldn't understand it. It sounds like German. We call it English because our current contemporary English developed from it. But Old English is very definitely, it's guttural, it's Germanic, it's very, very different. This is kind of like the way Aramaic would have related to ancient Hebrew. And Hebrew is so ancient that even in Jesus' day, it was ancient. That's ancient, ancient, right? Um, it's really similar to Arabic. So um, if you were to go to Saudi Arabia today, Arabic is spoken. And the Quran is written in Arabic. But the Arabs in Saudi Arabia or anywhere where the Arabic is spoken do not understand that ancient Arabic. It's very, very different. Okay, That doesn't keep them from memorizing it, but it's very, very different. 
Okay, now this is this is cool. This is interesting. Kids, stay with me, right? This is, uh, we're trying to understand how this word logos would represent uh, God through Jesus, okay? Um, there were a series of, of Aramaic translations that were made of the ancient Hebrew Bible, and they're called Targums. In the Targums, we find the same reverence for God's name, but with a new convention, a new practice. Many times when the Tetragrammaton comes up, when God's name comes up, or when God is associated with anything that is anthropomorphic, that is anything that is that is human or anything that is physical, um, they substitute the, the Aramaic word memra, memra for God's name. Guess what memra means? Yep, it means word, just like logos. In English, memra means word. So word was used to represent Yahweh in these Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Old Testament. So the word communicates Yahweh to us personally. Instead of a name or a word, we have the word, the Son of God, who became a man Christ Jesus to represent us to God, to represent God to us and us to God, right? The word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is not merely a man, he is God. Further, he reveals that God exists as more than one person. Now we went over this, I I thought fairly extensively and quite well on Sunday, this idea of the Trinity together with the Holy Spirit about whom Jesus will have much more to say in the Gospel of John. The one God is three persons. And I read this uh, this uh, definition from the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church Sunday, but I'll read it again to you. God is one, yet self-differentiated. The God who reveals himself to mankind is one God, equally in three distinct modes of existence, yet remains one through all eternity. So this is a paradox, and to explain it, the early church fathers used this word Trinity um, to represent it. And uh, I again, uh, I talked to you about the Arian heresy on Sunday, where there was a large segment of the early church that began to believe that Jesus was just another created being. He was an exalted and elevated created being, But this fellow named Arius said there was a time when he was not. He was a created being. Hence, this ancient heresy is called Arianism. The Council of Nicaea met in A.D. 325, and the result was the Nicene Creed. And I'll read that again to you. Um, This is the, the relevant passage from the Nicene Creed to this idea of the Son being one with God. I believe in one God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And I mentioned this several times on Sunday, but it just... It just dawns on me that our Christology is not high enough. We don't think of Jesus as being high enough or important enough. We don't understand how amazing he really, really is. So as if what we've already encountered here is not enough, the um, 
prologue goes on to say, all things came into being through him or all things were made through him. And I mentioned this Sunday um, in Genesis chapter one, God says in the, in the uh, it says of God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he speaks it into existence. And so Genesis one, three says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And again, uh, on Sunday, I mentioned, what do we speak with? What do we use to speak? We use words. Jesus is the word through which God brought the universe into existence. The uncreated, incomprehensible, infinite, omnipotent God creates and continues to sustain creation through the Son, through Christ. The crown or the pinnacle of the created order is humankind, you and I. Okay, Jesus is not a created being. He became one of us, right, in the manger, right? He was incarnated, but he's not a created being. You represent the pinnacle of creation. But Christ is the point. The Son, the Word, is the point of creation, right? Um, And... You and I are made in God's image. That's why we're the pinnacle of creation. But as I concluded Sunday, um, we have we sin, and that defaces that image. It deforms that image, and so we must come back to the Son, the perfect image of God, to have the image of God um, recreated, regenerated, fixed, if you will, in us. Let's look at this idea of uh, wisdom as it relates to the word. Jesus is wisdom personified. In Proverbs, wisdom is preexistent with God. Now, wisdom, different than the word, is seen as being created by God, but there is an identification with wisdom and the word. Listen to what it says of wisdom in Proverbs 8, 23, and then in verse 30. From eternity, this is wisdom speaking as though wisdom is a person. From eternity, I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. And then in verse 30, when he, that is God, marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman. So we see this connection between wisdom and the word. The word is obviously connected to the Old Testament wisdom. The word and wisdom were with God in the beginning. Indeed, before the beginning of time. The word is God's wisdom now identified as his son. God's wisdom through the word tells us why God created us and the way we should live. Friends, the word is the why and the way. Jesus is the reason. He's the why and he is the way. All things have been created for him or through him and for him, it says in Colossians 1.16. The father is the originator, the initiator, okay? Um, but Christ is the one through whom and for whom everything is created. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 8.6. Uh, we taught through that, uh, but it's been probably a year ago. Yet for us, there is only one God, the father, from whom are all things, And we exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through him. 
Jesus is the why. The why is love. Jesus is not only the Savior who came to rescue us after we'd fallen into sin. Jesus is the love of God, fully realized and expressed. God willed to create a world where his love could be poured out, and Jesus is the means and the medium through which God flows to those made in his image. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the way. He's the why. The why is love. That's why God created you. God created you to love you. Right? But he also has a specific way for you to live. There is a way things are supposed to be. Jesus is the word, and so he is the way. In fact, he called himself that. John 14, 6, later in John, all right? Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is a way things are supposed to be. Established by God before creation, and the word is the way, okay? This is why we must follow Jesus. The word personifies the divine way. Jesus embodies this fully in his incarnation, that is, when he became a man. We are not living in a material universe devoid of purpose, as those who reject Christ believe. This is what Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, says. There is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. That's what Dawkins says, right? But this same faith in a pointless universe is also taught in universities, and the position is held by many who have influence. And because of that, we've inherited a world where people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They have no direction. They make it up as they go along. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes, as uh, it says in the book of Judges. They're fools who say in their heart, there is no God. In all their thoughts, there is no room for God. The way to save our world from the brink of destruction, friend, it's just really simple. You and I need to follow Jesus. And we need to bring people back to Jesus. We need to point the way to Christ. So I sat in the back room here uh, some months ago talking to some friends who once attended this church, good people, um, but they'd kind of decided to go another way, a different direction with their lives. And uh, the man said, well, we're just doing our own thing now. And he said, well, I still believe in God. But I said to them what I say to you. It's not, about, it's not a matter of whether you believe in God. It's whether or not you're following Jesus. Are you following Jesus? You say you believe in Jesus, then you will follow Jesus. And that's going to make all the difference in your life. Okay? Um, everything came into being through the Lord. All, and apart from him, that is apart from Christ, nothing came into being that has come into being. This means Christ is the agent of creation, both at the beginning and throughout the development of the universe and the earth. At each stage of creation, um, there is an overwhelming transformation, which is impossible apart from the will of a powerful intelligence. So from nothing to something, Right from non-existence to existence requires this powerful 
uh, intelligent operation of a will. From random ordered chaotic particles to a universe of stars, galaxies, and planets, there's order. From matter to energy and life, just mere matter that's not life to life, requires this will and this intelligence that uh, operates upon it. And then from biological life, mere like the plant out there in the lobby that I can't get to grow, (laughs) to you, you're conscious, you're aware, you're self-aware, and you have the the possibility of being God-aware, and the plant doesn't have that possibility, okay? So from biological life to consciousness requires, again, this operation of a, a powerful, intelligent will, the word superintends this purposeful development and continuously or continually sustains it. Christ continues to work. That's what he says in John 5, 17. He says, uh, I am, my father is at work and I am also at work. Even as things continue to change, there's an order and a reason behind all change. I'll say that again. There is an order and a reason behind all change. And the word explains it all. Um, this contradicts the concept of deism, for example, wherein God starts the process of creation and then leaves it to itself, making himself unavailable for communication with human beings, much less communion. The word has been present and active in the world from the beginning through his incarnation and beyond his resurrection. And now his ascension and down, down to our day through his Holy Spirit who will come to live in each one of us. He expresses himself in and through that Holy Spirit even at this moment and in this place or in the place where you are there watching online. All right, we're going to continue with our study in John, in the Gospel of John on Sunday uh, where we have this idea of Jesus being the light of life. All right. God bless you guys. For Appreciate you joining us online. If you would like to give us feedback, uh, you can go to our website, lifewellchurch.com, and you will find uh, on the main page, there's a feedback tab, and you can click that. You can fill out that form. Uh, you can give us feedback. You can ask for prayer requests, all sorts of things like that. I hope that you are able to do this. We have a text service uh, that I use to send out information on our church throughout the week. And uh, basically all you need to do is text the word LIFEWELL from your phone to 94000. And if you do that, it'll drop you into that news text list. You'll get a couple of those texts uh, from us every week. 